let's uh, now turn our attention to uh, Ruth chapter 1, um, and we'll read the first six verses. Let's all rise as we uh, look at God's word together. This is what God says to us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Amen. Uh, Starting today, we are beginning a new sermon series entitled Faithful Redeemer. And this series is on one of the most fascinating yet underappreciated stories in all of the Bible, and that is the story of Ruth. You see, Ruth is a very short book. There are only four chapters to it, yet within these four chapters, we have all the themes necessary to make a compelling story. We have tragedy and triumph. We have death and life. We have despair and hope. There's even love and the theme of loyalty. Now, if you take all of these things, and if you read it through the lens of the gospel, what we find is that Ruth is, in my estimation, one of the most powerful portraits of grace and redemption that we have in the entire Bible. Now, in any other year or any other circumstance, this would be the normal introduction. We would talk about Ruth in this way, and we would just jump right in. However, I think there's something more to be said about Ruth in the year 2020. Uh, Around March, uh, late March to early April, when we first started to experience uh, the full effect of COVID in society, there was this word that everyone was using to describe our situation. What is that word? unprecedented, (laughs) unprecedented. Every article, every newscast, every email in these unprecedented times. It became so popular, so widely used, that the novelty of this word was quickly lost. And of course, the internet turned this word into a meme. Now, I was going to show you a few, uh, but I resisted. Uh, Because showing memes in worship is unprecedented. (laughs) 
You know, everyone was saying that these were unprecedented times. And I started to think, really? Are these really unprecedented times? Because if so, if these are such unique times, that means that we have to provide our own answers, we have to pave our own way, we have to search for our own hope, and we have to be the captains of our own destiny. And this got me somewhat fearful. As someone who's trying to lead a family and trying to lead a church and be faithful to the Lord's cause, I started to be fearful, thinking, you know what, if this is really unprecedented, what am I going to do? And so I started to search and seek out for some sort of answer, for any sliver of hope. And in that search, the Lord kept bringing me back to this book, Ruth. This humble story of grace and redemption. The Lord kept bringing me back to this story, reminding me that this is a story that we need to hear once again. And so today, what I'd like to do as our first week in this series is I want to begin by just setting the table, by giving you an introduction to the book, namely for the purpose of seeing that this story has meaning and significance for us now. I want to set the stage and show you that this story, this powerful story of redemption and grace, this story of hope, is our story. It's the story that we ought to cling on to during these times. So here's the setting. Verse 1, we read this. This is how it begins. In the days when the judges ruled. Now we have to stop here because this is really important information. See, verse 1 is telling us what's going on in the world of Ruth. You see, the time of judges was a time that was characterized by chaos, by lawlessness, and a loss of moral compass. If you read Judges for the first time, your stomach will actually turn because the people are swimming in their depravity. The people are so deep in their sin. And at the same time, while they are committing atrocious sins, the people think that they're actually pursuing justice. If you read Judges for the first time, you'll actually get sick because of the blindness, the hypocrisy, and because of the depravity of the people. This is how Judges ends. This is the last verse in Judges before we turn the page to Ruth and read this story. This is how Judges ends. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, the time of the judges was a time when Israel had forsaken God, and everyone was king in their own eyes. It was a time when no one listened to instruction, no one wanted correction, everyone sat on his or her own throne and acted like they were king. It's my life, I can do what I want with it. And as a result of this spiritual blindness and this spiritual arrogance, there was complete ruin and complete chaos. This is what one author 
um, Caroline Curtis James writes about the time of Ruth. She writes this, It was a tumultuous time. The global stage was dominated by political instability, penetrated national borders, gender inequality, racial disparity, international tensions, economic crises, injustice, violence, wars, and natural disasters. Now, when you read this description, you can't help think, is this describing 1300 B.C. or 2020 A.D.? Following, the very next thing that verse 1 tells us, if we look, it says, in the time of the judges, or in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, I know that for us, not too long ago, uh, there was a period when we had a shortage of milk, when we had a shortage of bread, and a shortage of paper towels, or paper or toilet papers. And uh, if you go out to the shopping malls or the supermarkets, um, it felt a bit dystopian. However, uh, despite that short period of time uh, when there was a shortage of things, we actually didn't come close to a famine. You know, for a famine to officially be declared, there are three criteria that have to be met according to the UN. And of those three, there's one. Um, The last criteria is this. The death rate has to exceed two persons per day per 10,000 people. So for a country of our size, the United States, of 330 million people, that means that 66,000 people would have to die per day for it to be officially declared a famine. I think the highest number of COVID-related deaths at one point was 6,000, and that was just for a few days. So imagine 66,000 people dying of hunger. Now, of course, the UN wasn't around during the time of Ruth, but I think this kind of information is helpful for us to understand the, the severity and the desperation of the time. So we talked about everything, right? Uh, the, the time when the judges ruled, the loss of a moral compass, uh, there's chaos, injustice, uh, lawlessness that's going around. People think that they're their own kings. They think that they're right in their own eyes. No one is listening to any kind of instruction. They're just doing whatever they want. You couple that with a famine a national dis- uh, or a uh, natural disaster. Everything, the lawlessness we talked about, and you add the shortage of the most bottom line, the most basic essential thing that we need for survival. What do you think is going to happen? Imagine a world where there's moral, spiritual decay combined with a famine. It's like a global pandemic combined with terrorism. You add on top of that social unrest the erosion of truth, social injustice, division, discord, all wrapped up together. This is the setting of Ruth. Now, within this setting, within this chaos, we are introduced to a man, a man whose name is Elimelech. Now, at first glance, when we read the story, we're introduced to this man, and the readers are probably thinking, okay, Here is the hero that we need. 
Elimelech. You see, Israel at this point is desperate for a spiritual awakening. They are desperate for societal reforms that reflects the mercy and the justice of God. And here is this man, Elimelech. His name actually means, my God is king. In a time when everyone thought they were their own king, here is this man who's named, my God is king. You know, one thing that um, we should know about a famine uh, in the Old Testament is that a famine was often a sign, a direct sign from God. It was a sign that the people had turned away from God, and a famine was God's way of calling his people back to him. So if you look with me at Deuteronomy 11, this is what it says. As God is describing what's going to happen, he says this, Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So we find here that a famine is a sign from God. It's a sign that the people have turned away. But it doesn't end there because after this, God constantly calls his people back. If you look at Deuteronomy 30, it says this. God is saying this. After all of the sin that you've committed, God says, return to the Lord your God. Return to God. He will restore your fortunes. He will have mercy on you. He will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your ground. So we find in the Old Testament that the famine was a sign from God that the people had turned away, and God was calling the people back to him. It was a sign for the people to return to the Lord. Robert Alter, who is a well-known Jewish scholar, says that the book of Ruth actually revolves around three themes. The first theme is faithfulness, or hesed in the Hebrew. And this faithfulness, we we see that displayed um, through Boaz. The second theme that uh, Alter says that uh, Ruth is centered around is the theme of clinging, loyalty. And we'll see that next week in Ruth. And the third theme that Alter says that Ruth is about is the theme of returning. A spiritual returning. A returning to the Lord. And this is actually the first major theme that we find in our text. You see, when we read of all that's going on in the world, and we're introduced to Elimelech, we, we, we are thinking, is he the one? Is this individual the one who would return to God? Is this individual the one who would look out upon the land, be cut to the heart, be broken inside because of his own sins and the sins of his people? Can Elimelech be the sole individual who actually falls on his knees, who falls on his face, who comes before the Lord in repentance with hands lifted up, declaring, my God, you are my king. Have your way in us. 
Will Elimelech be the one who sparks a revival? Will he be the one who turns from his way and seeks God? Well, we find out shortly that instead of returning to the Lord, Elimelech does the easiest thing. He does the most cowardice thing. He does the very opposite thing. See, when the call was to return to God, Elimelech decides to leave. He decides to depart, to run the very opposite way with his family. You know, this is a very common action that we find in the Bible. When the call of repentance or the call to return is issued, we often find in the Bible that people, they go the opposite way. We find it with Elimelech, we find it with Jonah, we find it with Elijah, with Peter. And not only do we find this common in the Bible, but I think we find it common in our own lives as well. Friends, how many times have you heard the call to repentance, the call to turn to God, yet you decided to go the opposite way? I mean, how often have we felt the Holy Spirit pressing upon our consciences telling us that with repentance comes times of refreshing, yet we decide to meddle in idolatry longer because we think that without the approval and the pleasures of our idols, we can't live. When you're reminded that the kindness of God leads to repentance, did you not think, well, if God is so kind, why can't I just go on living my life As my own king. And in those moments when you're called to return to your heavenly father. Have you not thought. Maybe this is it. Instead of facing my heavenly father with the shame that I bear. I'm just going to walk away altogether. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I'm going to wipe my hands clean. I'm going to leave the father's house. And no longer be bothered by the urging and the pleading of this God. How often when the call to repentance and return was issued, we decided to do the very opposite. You know, I know a minister of the gospel who often thinks these thoughts. I know this minister so well. In fact, I even know his thoughts and I know his meditations. And I can attest that even this minister resists as often as he can the call to return, the call to repent. You see, Elimelech does not return to the Lord, but he departs from the Lord. See, if Elimelech had repented, the book of Ruth would be much shorter. But his insistence on taking matters into his own hands prolongs the story of God's pursuing grace. So what happens, Elimelech with his family They immigrate to Moab. Now, Moab isn't just any foreign land, but Moab is an enemy to Israel. Over and over again throughout the Bible, God warns his people against the Moabites because of their idolatrous ways. And so Elimelech, going to Moab was a conscientious decision. And verse 3 quickly tells us, when they arrive in Moab, this man, he dies. The hero that we expected, he dies. 
Now, we don't know how he died, but the irony is Elimelech did all of this so that he could survive. He wrestled his way out of his convictions and his belief. He wrestled his way out of what he held to be true so that he could go on and simply live. And yet we find out that he had absolutely no control over the thing he sought to take control over, his own life. Soon after, the story quickly turns. His two sons, Malon and Chilean, they get married. They get married to Moabite women. And if there was even a sliver of hope, hope for new beginnings, hope for a new family, all of that literally dies when after 10 years they are unable to have children and both Malon and Chilean, they die. So what we have is, in the span of five verses, we have a husband dying, we have two sons dying, and the only remnant left in the story is a middle-aged Jewish woman with her two Moabite daughter-in-law. Now, if I'm completely honest with you, this story that's taking place in the ancient Near East should end at this point. This is where the story should end. Okay, There are three women here. Two who failed to bear a child after 10 years, and another woman who is in her post-menopausal stage. So we have three women unable to bear children. They're both foreigners. One is a Jewish woman in a Moabite land, and two Moabites who actually look to go back to Israel. See, society deemed these women to be of absolutely no value. When we look upon these women who are left in the story, they are completely worthless according to the eyes of the world. And many would say that they are accursed because of all the suffering they faced. Don't go near them. Death seems to follow them around. They are unable to give birth. They are completely useless. If this was any other story, any other ancient Near Eastern story, the story would end quickly with the two Moabite women giving their bodies, selling themselves as slaves. And most likely Naomi, this old Jewish woman in a foreign land, It would end with her taking her life quickly and quietly because she has absolutely no value and nowhere to turn to. But this is no ordinary story, friends. It's a story of God's faithfulness. It's a story of grace and redemption. And verse 6 tells us this, that God visited his people again. When all hope seemed lost, verse 6 tells us that God visits his people. And he was in the process of restoring them. After years of chastisement, the Lord is now seeking out his people. And when Naomi hears of this, she does what her husband, Elimelech, failed to do. She gets up and she returns. She returns to the Lord. You see, Naomi isn't worried 
about the scorn or the, sh or the shame that she's going to face when going back. She doesn't care. See, Naomi is desperate at this point. And when someone is desperate, embarrassment and public shame are the least of one's concern. Naomi decides to return because outside of God, she knows that she has no life. She knows that away from the Lord is death. And to return to the Lord means life. And so Naomi chooses life. I want to stop right here and just emphasize one thing that we find in today's passage. And the one thing that I think we have to draw our attention to is God's scandalous grace. God's scandalous grace. I'm not sure if you've ever uh, taken notice, but there are only two books in the Bible that are named after a woman. The first is Esther, and Esther is a well-known one because she's a queen. But the other is Ruth. Think about a book in the Bible, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, named after a Moabite woman. And as we saw in today's passage, this story of grace and redemption is about two women, two women who are foreigners, Naomi in Moab and Ruth in Israel. It's a story about one woman who can no longer conceive and one woman who failed to conceive for 10 years. It's a story about two women who are marginalized, two women who are considered worthless in the eyes of the world, two women who seem to be undeserving of God's goodness. But the story tells us that it's to these two women that God pursues them with his love and his grace. Church, I want us to be reminded this morning, I want you all to be reminded that Ruth is what, what Ruth is teaching us is this, that being insignificant will never disqualify you from his grace. Being insignificant will never disqualify you from God's grace. You know, Christians, we have a hard time understanding and believing this. See, Christians, I think we, we, we can think that we're insignificant, right? We can acknowledge, yes, I'm a nobody, and that's correct. But if you think I'm a nobody, and because of that, God doesn't care about me, then you're wrong. You see, you can have the right view of yourself, but you can have the wrong view of God. Now, the opposite is just as dangerous. If you think I'm a somebody, and because of that, God cares for me, that's also wrong. Now, how is Ruth correcting our view of ourself and our view of God? Well, Ruth is telling us this. This is how we should view ourselves and how we should view God. We should say, I am insignificant. I am a nobody, but still God pursues me. Or in the words of the psalmist, who am I? Who am I that you should be mindful of? You know, Christians, I, I want you to know that there's a difference between modesty and humility, okay? 
Modesty says, I'm a nobody, so I'm not going to bother God. He doesn't really care about me. Humility says, I'm a nobody, and because I'm a nobody, I need God. Humility says, I am a nobody, I am a dog. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You see, Christians, I think, have a lot of practice in modesty, but very little exercise in humility. Often we think, you know what, I'm a nobody, so, you know, I just don't want to bother people. I don't want to bother God. But, you know, true humility says, I'm a nobody. And because I'm a nobody, I need God. You know, today is the first day of November. And uh, the year that's gone by has gone by so quickly. And the past year has been a real difficult one. But, you know, in speaking with some of our members, our congregants, I noticed that a lot of our, a lot of our congregants, you were hesitant about expressing difficulty or hardship. You were very hesitant about sharing any kind of struggle because you didn't want to come off as being entitled or complaining about first world problems. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the past six months, you know, I'm struggling, but it's really nothing when I look out at the world and I see people dying of COVID, people losing their jobs, people getting evicted. You know, I'm struggling, but I can't complain. You know, someone told me last week, I wish I, I wish, I wish I tested positive for COVID because then I can talk about my suffering without people mocking me. How can I share that I'm going through depression when people are literally dying? How can I talk about discrimination and feeling inferior when other minorities, when other ethnic groups are targeted every day? How can I say I'm struggling with loneliness when I live in a comfortable home? You know, this feeling of insignificance coupled with the feeling that my anxieties and struggles are also insignificant, and you further combine that with all that's going out in the world, and you think to yourself, how can I bother God about this? Why would he even bat an eye? Why would he even care about this? You know, if I can be honest with you, I've often taken this stance as well. I've often told myself, Stephen, stop being such a baby. Don't be so emotional, we- emotionally weak. Don't be so mentally weak. Suck it up. You know, if you're like me and you had uh, immigrant parents, you know, you're conditioned to think that, you know, because your parents are so tired, because they're so busy, we're trained to not bother them unless our life is really in danger. Right? You know what that means, right? You can be sick at school, but you can't call your parents to pick you up unless you're going to die. You can't call your parents. You, you, you might be dealing with social issues, but you can't bring that up because they'll just tell you, study, study, study. You're conditioned not to bother your parents with anything. You're trained not to burden them with anything. And I think we often project that onto God. 
I don't want to call attention to the struggles that I have because it's just spiritual. It's just psychological. It's just emotional. And God has more important things to do. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm not saying that we ought not to be thankful. We're to be thankful in all circumstances. And I also want to be careful that we don't just complain about silly things. If your struggle in life is slow Wi-Fi speed, that's first world problems. If your biggest gripe in life are the long lines at Trader Joe's, or if your biggest struggle is Chipotle reducing their portion sizes, that's first world problems. But in your feeling of insignificance, if you feel as though you are insignificant and your problems are insignificant, and you feel as though, you know what, I can't go to God with this. I can't bother God with this. Does God really care about this? Ruth reminds us, Ruth tells us that God knows that he cares and that he lovingly pursues you. I think that is my cue to stop all the people walking by. But let me just end in this way. Church, you know, when was the last time that you were reminded that Jesus loves you? Not that he loves everyone, that he loves the world, that he's just magnanimous and generous and he fills the world with this love. But when was the last time that you were reminded that Jesus loves you? That he was filled with love for you? When was the last time that you were reminded of the fact that Jesus, he died for you? He didn't just die for the world generally but he died for you. When was the last time that you were reminded that your name was written on his hands? That as he went to the cross, he went to the cross knowing your sin, knowing your shame, knowing your struggles, that he loves you, that he died for you, that he's counted the hairs on your head, And he knows your worries and all of your fears. You know, the Old Testament is a book, is is filled with stories of kings and kingdoms. And you wonder, where is Ruth's place in all of this? Here are two women who are completely worthless. What are they doing in the Bible? But we are reminded through the story that God knows he cares And he faithfully pursues. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, time and time again, God identifies himself with four people groups. He says, I am the God of these people. Do you know who they are? He says, I am the God of the poor. I am the God of the widow. I am the God of the fatherless. I am the God of the immigrant, the foreigner. And Ruth and Naomi are all of these things. See, and this is the scandalous grace that we find. It's not despite my insignificance that God pursues me. 
but it's precisely because I'm significant, I'm insignificant, God pursues me. The reason why we find God lovingly chasing after these two women is because of their insignificance. It's not despite our worthlessness that God pursues us, but it's because we are worthless God pursues us. He identifies with us and he seeks us out. This is the scandalous grace of our God. And may we rest in this once again this morning. Would you join me in prayer at this time?